Have you all ever been afraid to uh, confess your sins or afraid to go to your authority and tell them what you did? Whether to ask for forgiveness or to beg for mercy? Have you guys ever been afraid to go to your authority, your parent, whoever, your guardian, your boss, and tell them that you messed up? Imagine what it would be like to go to someone, your authority, who always promised forgiveness and reconciliation and love and mercy when we all would just freely acknowledge that we messed up. Wouldn't that be a unique relationship? I think the book of Jonah shows us just this, that when we mess up, when we sin, we can freely run to Christ, freely run to Him, and, and it is guaranteed that we would know God's compassion. As Rick mentioned earlier, uh, we've been in the book of Jonah, and we will continue to be in the book of Jonah through next week. And um, Jonah is a popular book, so if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. Jonah is a popular book, it's known for the great fish, uh, which actually was not a whale, it was a great fish. And, of course, this fish swallows up this guy, right? Okay, so that's really unique. Um, But there have been, in history, accounts of other people getting swallowed by whales and living, or by fish and living. So we can look it up today, go to our libraries and find these reports of other people being swallowed by great fish. It's also known for Jonah's disobedience, which we're going to look at a little bit later. Um, But more than that... The book of Jonah communicates to us that God's compassion goes out to all of his creation, even the wicked. Even the wicked. Not because he approves of the wicked, but because they are, in fact, his creation. And so he cares for it all. Um, I'll go ahead and summarize chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says. This This is what kicks off the whole book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come upon me. But instead of obeying God, right, okay, if God the divine speaks and the word of the Lord comes to him, instead of obeying that divine word and going east to Nineveh, he actually takes off and goes west to the very edge of the known Mediterranean world. He disobeys God, and he tries to flee from him. And, and flee from his will. The question is, well, why? It's because he knows that God is a compassionate God and forgives those who repent of their sin and who turn to him. So he's like this little grumpy prophet, more like a child, who sort of takes off in the other direction. And what happens is he gets on this boat, this, this massive storm arises and is threatening to break up the boat. And these pagan sailors, these non-Christian sailors, um, they cry out and they're like, what's going on? And Jonah confesses to them and says, well, the reason why the storm is here is because I disobeyed God. And the sailors were like, well, well, tell us what to do. Who are you? And he says, I am a Hebrew man. I follow God, maker of everything in the universe. And what's so fascinating is that the pagan sailors here, they obey God. Even when Jonah is not The Lord in his providence uses this disobedient prophet to convert these non-Christian, idol-worshipping sailors. 
And so they want to stop the storm and they look to Jonah because he's the one to blame. And, and Jonah says, well, throw me into the ocean and let the waves sort of swallow me up and I would die. And in the end, they go ahead and they do that. But in God's sovereign providence, okay, there's a lot of salvation going on in this book. The pagan sailors are saved. Also, Jonah, the wayward prophet, is saved. So look there in 117. He's thrown overboard. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That is a fish of deliverance. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and then three nights. Uh, chapter 2 then is this great prayer of Jonah. He's thanking God for the deliverance that he has through this, uh, through this fish. And then it ends, his prayer, it ends at 2.9. Go ahead and look there. You get the sense of resolve. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's so fascinating here is you see Jonah, the disobedient prophet, copying the pagan sailors who are now converted. Because at the end of that account, the, the wave and the storm account, they offer up vows to God and sacrifice. Chapter 2, now you see disobedient Jonah doing the same thing. Praise God for his salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Um, I always wonder there if there's a play on words. You know, you think vomit, you don't think dry, but he ends up on the dry land. Anyways. <laughs> okay, so Jonah chapter 3, look there. We're going to continue on. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Alright, this should be really familiar, right? We just looked at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And it's an echo of those exact same words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But this time it is a second time. The question is, what will Jonah do? Verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, or great in the eyes of the Lord. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. It's interesting here. Um, people have wondered what this means when it says a three days' journey or a three days' breadth. Um, it could be that uh, it took three days to accomplish this, this mission. One day to walk to city center. Another day to, let's say, reach the officials, because there were court officials appointed to hear from, basically, people from other nations. So one day to preach, one day to give his message, and then one day to leave. Uh, that's probably what it uh, refers to. And your footnotes probably address that in relation to maybe um, a three days journey. But this here is incredible. You have Jonah of the people of God walking into Nineveh, who were known for their abominations and their violence. So this is a prophet of God. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were just devastating in terms of their brutality. Uh, one example is uh, when the Assyrians would conquer a group of people, sometimes they would decapitate some of them, and they would ask the decapitated person's family members to parade their heads on poles. Um, so they were known for their brutality. And here comes Jonah, the people of God, walking into city center, proclaiming to all the people, 
40 days and your city will be overturned. He's proclaiming their destruction. So you can just imagine, right, what these people might do. Jeremiah the prophet, he preached to his very own people and what did they do? They arrested him, they jailed him, they gave him a death sentence even. And here Jonah comes preaching that they would be destroyed. It's interesting that out of, out of everything that he probably said, right, we assume that this was more than what he actually said. Um, it's interesting that this soundbite is all we have of what Jonah said. Right, again, we assume that God gave Jonah more to say because, as, as we're going to see by the end of the chapter, they know which God to turn to. So we assume that Jonah is clarifying for them. But this soundbite is so Jonah, isn't it? He could proclaim a thousand things, but he says, 40 days and you will be destroyed. Um, as I argued last a couple weeks ago, I think Jonah wanted to preach destruction, but only if it ended up in, his, in their destruction, not in their reconciliation. If it ends up in their re- reconciliation, he's not going to do it. He's going to go to the west instead of the east. Um, but in this proclamation of overthrowing uh, I'm sure Jonah had in mind here, and we also are supposed to remember another great city that was overthrown. In fact, two great cities that were overthrown. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. And those cities were known for uh, rejecting and dishonoring God, especially through acts of homosexuality or sexual immorality. They were known for abusing men made in the image of God, abusing one another. And this is what God says. He did in Genesis 19. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. And then look how, look how extensive the, the destruction is, the judgment is. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. For Nineveh, they were known for a different kind of wickedness. They were known for, again, brutality and violence, destroying and torturing men made in the image of God. So one would expect that Jonah's preaching would result in the the, the overturning of Nineveh. But look what happens. It's like in the account of this narrative, the story, it doesn't skip a beat. He preaches, and then look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Interesting to note there, when he says that they believed God... Right? It's Jonah actually speaking. So when Jonah speaks the word of God, it is God speaking to the point where they say, and they believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So here they, they believe and then they repent. And this here, the repentance of the whole city. Imagine if all of Hacienda Heights or whatever city you come from repents and believes in God. That is more incredible than Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. They fast and wear sackcloth. Those those things are associated with repentance. Um, Fasting is is when you refrain from food to seek God's will and mercy. Sackcloth is made of goat's hair or camel's hair, and you might wear it underneath uh, your garments. And in sort of the the self-humiliation in fasting, and then this extreme discomfort would sort of represent one submission to God. I'm giving myself over to you and not my own will, not my own desires. 
But the uh, greater focus is not how they repent, but it's on who. Did you guys notice that in verse 5? Who repents? It says the greatest of them to the least of them. This here is every godly preacher's dream. And as you see in chapter 4, and we're going to see later on in the sermon, this is Jonah's nightmare. But this, for every godly preacher, is their dream. To see the whole city seemingly come and repent and trust in God. And the revival sort of bubbles up, according to the account. Look at there in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. So it could mean that, that, that this repentance and the word actually rose up from, let's say, the lay people to the authorities. It could also mean that it touched the king, that he was moved by it. And look what he does. You know, this here is a ruler type of king. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes, also associated with repentance. So you just compare those two people right here. This author, maybe it's Jonah, he's, he's drawing that contrast. What does he do when the word of the Lord comes to him? He rises and he flees. But here you have this pagan, idol-worshipping, nasty king, ruler of Nineveh. What does he do when the word of the Lord comes to him? He rises from his throne. It's like he steps off of his throne. He removes his royal robe. And he covers himself with the garments and the mentality and the spirit of repentance. And he goes further. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone who turn from his evil way and from his, and the, the violence that is in his hands, who knows God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Again, here the focus is not on how they repent so much as to who repents. Do you guys notice who this proclamation goes to? It goes to everybody, everyone, and even everything. So the beasts, the herds, the flocks, everyone and everything is dedicated here to God. So it's not teaching, you know, like evangelism to animals. You know, like you guys ought to evangelize my lizards um here the point here is that everything in this king's kingdom is now consecrated to the one who rules over all the true king in fact and he gives it all to him so this here i think is a logical response to worshiping one who as jonah said in one chapter one verse nine go ahead and turn back there chapter one verse nine so consecrating everything in the kingdom is a logical response when one worships the God of Jonah. Chapter 1 verse 9. The Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's ownership. The appropriate response, if you are owned, is then to give everything you have to the owner, right? And you have a great picture of repentance here. As this man comes to, to understand what's involved in following God. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. So every individual was supposed to turn from their evil way, everything that promotes violence that their hands were known for. Right, so you can imagine that these Ninevites, these Assyrians, would be looking down at their hands and remembering 
the blood that flowed from the heads that they could just decapitate it, right? This king is calling them all murderers. We assume that their killing was unjust. Certainly their torturing was unjust. He's calling them all, turn from your evil, wicked way. This here literally is a picture of repentance. And that is what repentance means. It is to turn away from what you're doing, and not just towards not doing it, but it's turning away from what you are doing, and in fact towards God himself. Repentance literally means to turn around. And so the whole kingdom here is to turn towards God, turn away from all sin, and to God who is over all things, who has made all things, and who in fact owns all things. This is the God that owns all of us. Every aspect of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our desires, our bodies even. And everything ought to be consecrated to Him. I, I wonder if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer. If there are any of you here, we welcome you. <clears throat> we really believe, Christians really believe, um, that we owe everything to God. And by owe, I mean like if you shoot a three-pointer, you're not like you know, pointing up to God and doing whatever... Uh, as it, like, like that is what we owe to God, you know, scoring touchdowns and scoring baskets. Here, owning or owing is tied to owning. We owe everything to God because he actually owns us. And he has claim over every single thing we do in every area of our lives. And so what the Ninevites here are doing is they repent from what they're doing and turning towards God. Everyone in the world ought to be doing that. This is natural and normal if we follow the God of the Bible who actually owns everything. And so to not give everything to God and recognize his claim is in fact sin. It's going against him and his ownership as he is the sovereign God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They refused to do that in the beginning. God made them to be in a relationship with him. And they basically said, no, you know what? We're not going to give ourselves over to you, the rightful ruler who reigns and rules. Instead, we want to be our own rulers and our own kings who reign. And so the very commands that come from God, they just, you know, they don't really care. And then they go and do what they want. That is what one has said is the de-godding of God. It's toppling over God and placing themselves on the throne. And we're going to do whatever we want to. And ever since Adam and Eve, man has been doing those very same things. Refusing the rule and reign of God and doing what we think is best and right and good. The question though, if you, know, if you guys watch any news at all, the question we all should be asking is, well, how is that working out for us all? How is it working out amongst the nations? For you, Christian, I wonder if there is any part of you that you have not consecrated to God. That you have not given over to God. Any bit of you that you are having trouble giving over to the Lord. I mean, perhaps mentally you say, I love our loving God, but maybe your spirit struggles to be mean. Maybe your spirit struggles with keeping grudges. Maybe you give the silent treatment, and in fact, you're pretty good at it. The reality is, is that uh, the silent treatment even is a way of murdering someone. It's a passive-aggressive way of murdering someone. So let's say Jeremy ticks me off and I say, I'm going to pretend he doesn't exist. Is that not murder? I pretend you do not exist. You don't deserve any bit of my attention. My heart. My thoughts. 
Maybe you say you follow God who is Lord over everything. He's king over all, you say. He deserves all of my worship and all of me. But maybe, you know, honoring the king and his wishes just simply doesn't factor into your daily decision-making process. Why I date the way I date. Who I date. Why I choose to work where I choose. How many kids I should have or not have. How I lead and shepherd my children or not do those things. What we do with our finances, what we do with our homes, what we do with our food. All of it is God's, right? Perhaps you say you worship a holy God, but you're having difficulty letting his holiness sort of work out into your daily practical life. What you set your mind on as you sit in front of the computer. What you let come into your mind when you sit in front of the television. Or even the very thoughts that you just permit to let rule your own mind on a day-to-day basis. The ones that you are never really quite checking or even asking God's people to help check as well. The question for you is, what of yourself are you keeping for yourself and not giving to God? Because when God moves in, when the Spirit moves into our lives, it's not like He fixes up just one part of the house, but He does a complete renovation. Now, granted, it might be slow, and we ought not refuse it, but He certainly, and without doubt, will make us into brand new people. That's what He does in recreation. Thank God. When I think about um, someone who gave themselves to God, who someone who understood this, I think of Jonathan Edwards. So America's greatest theologian lived in the 18th century, so the 1700s. And he wrote in his journal one day as he was reflecting on his conversion experience and uh, as he was reflecting on the church bringing him into membership. You know, naturally you think of your testimony. <clears throat> and so he wrote this in his diary. And it shows that he understood that God just owned all of them. And so therefore he wanted to give everything to God. This is what he wrote. I have been before God. So you can think of like quiet time, you know, meditation. I have been before God and I have given myself all that I am and have to God. So that I am not in any respect my own. I can challenge no right in myself. I can challenge no right in this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members. No right to this tongue. No right to these hands, these feet. No right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell or taste. I have given myself clear away, he says. And have not retained anything as my own. I have been to God this morning and told him that I gave myself wholly to him. Isn't that incredible? You have that picture that here's this man who just in his devotions, as he begins the, the, his, his day, is reading the word and praying. It's like every day, he, you just imagine, he's praying through his body, right? You know, oh Lord, these eyes, I pray Lord that these eyes would not look upon evil just as you are holy, so I would be holy. I pray, Lord, that I would use these ears wisely, that if I hear gossip or if I hear myself gossiping, that I would put those things in, in check and encourage other people not to do it. I pray over this tongue that I wouldn't say anything foolish and say nothing that would tear people down, but only things that would build up the church and honor and glorify God. I pray through my will that all of my desires would go to pleasing you, the one who owns all things. 
the one to whom belongs all of the glory and honor and praise that the world has. What of yourself do you need to concentrate, consecrate to God today? Let me encourage you to do that today. And to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. As we know the Christian life is not about repenting once. But a life of ongoing repentance and faith. God is a forgiving God and he will forgive you even now. As we all ought to know. As God is a forgiving God, we see here that he relents. Look in uh, 3. Let's repeat 8 and 9. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It is unfortunate, uh, by the way, it is unfortunate that, 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 that this decree, this call to repentance, comes from a pagan who's now converted. And not from Jonah. That is so sad. He, the king goes on and says, who knows? It's a submission to God. At the end of the day, God is sovereign. He grants forgiveness, but still he submits to his sovereignty. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they had did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God saw what they did, how they turned, and so he turned and he did not do it. Here, God saves from start to finish, right? It's obvious that he did not do what he said he would do, at least when it came to judgment. But who brought the word of the Lord to Jonah? Who sent Jonah, or at least called him to go there? Whose saving words or saving judgments were they? And who relented from disaster but granted salvation? It is God from start to finish, isn't it? Of course, we know this because God is a compassionate, merciful, and gracious God. These people here are cut to the heart and God saves them. He relents. Or some of your, your Bibles might read, he repents. Is, is that interesting to anybody here? God repents or God relents? I think it's interesting. Uh, let me clarify here. It does not mean that God repents of sin. Right? There is no sin in God to repent of. Remember, repentance means turning around. So here the question is, well, what does it mean then that he turns around? Well, here he's turning around from judgment. You could even say he's changing the direction of his course. You could even say maybe, although it is kind of confusing, that God changes his mind. Now, some people might think... Um, Man, there's a bunch of, this Bible's full of contradictions. God says he repents. But in 1 Samuel 15, 29, it reads, God is not like man, that he should change his mind. So what in the world is going on? There are no contradictions in the Bible, frankly. There are no contradictions in the Bible. So how do we explain this repentance or relenting? Um, you can think about it this way. If I am teaching Jeremiah to be clean, let's say. And I say, okay, Jeremiah, this is what we're going to do. Man, I love it when you help us out and cleaning, to clean the house. So when you clean the toilet, I'll give you 50 cents. And if you don't clean the house, I will fine you 50 cents. Okay, so those are the ground rules. If I come home one day at 6 p.m. 
and the toilet is not cleaned. And I said, Jeremiah, in 40 days, or not 40 days, that would be quite a dirty toilet. 40 <laughs> minutes, 40 minutes. Um, if, uh, you know, in 40 minutes, I'm going to have to find you 50 cents because the toilet is not clean. And he then says, oh, uh, yeah, I totally forgot. I messed up. He goes and cleans the toilet. And then 40 minutes later, I come back and I say, oh, wow, it's clean. I'm so encouraged. Here is 50 cents. Am I changing my mind in any way that casts a shadow of doubt on my character? Like, ought you guys to question, oh, I don't know if dad is loving because he changes his mind in that instance? I think the answer is clearly no. In fact, to Jeremiah, he says, I know dad means what he says. He says, if I clean it, I get 50 cents. And if I don't clean it, he will find me 50 cents. That's the ground rules. And so when I come home and I interact with him, it's natural that if he didn't do something and he decides to do it, I then change my mind according to what I've already decreed, according to what I've already decided. So that actually bolsters Maya's confidence. Dad means what he says. And if I do this, I get this. And if I do this, he's going to do this to me. That's here, what it, that, that's here uh, what it means. I mean, Israel knew this. Under the law of Moses, right? The people of God. Israel, they were already the people of God, right? Already the people of God. And God says, if you obey, I will bless. And if you disobey, I will curse. But they are still God's people. Listen also to, to what God has to say to the pagan nations. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10. Listen to this great and wonderful promise. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break it down and destroy it, and if, and if, it says, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from evil, I will relent of disaster that I intended to do. That there is a promise, right? He promises to bless the nations who turn and to judge the nations that don't. And he interacts with them in time. So in Jonah, though God relents from disaster, he is still acting according to his own promises. It's those promises that do not change. He acts according to his own ways. God is not flighty. He is not uncertain. He is not unsure. But he is absolutely sure and acts according to his promises. And that is what should amaze us here. The promise, the chance, the opportunity to turn from our sins... The compassion that he gives to us in offering repentance. That's the, whole book of, that's the whole point of the book. So pagan sailors repent and they believe and are saved. Jonah repents. And the whole city of Nineveh repents. And they're all being consecrated to God. The difference between Sodom and Gomorrah, go back to being overthrown. The difference between Sodom and Gomorrah is that there was no repentance. There was no repentance. So everything here was destroyed. In Nineveh, though, there is repentance and everything is consecrated to God. The beast, the herds, the flocks, and God relents. He has pity on the nation and chooses not to overthrow it, as in destroy them. God's compassion goes out to all of his creation, even the wicked, not because he approves of their wickedness, but because they are his creation. And he's just bent on teaching us about God's, about his own compassion. You know the word overthrow? It has two meanings. The first meaning is destruction. 40 days and you will be destroyed. It also means to sort of reform and revitalize. To turn over a new leaf, if you will. 
And God is so determined to teach us about his compassion that I can't help but imagine that Jonah is looking back thinking like, why am I preaching that message of destruction? Oh, like it just bothers me. But in reality, for us who actually come to know God's compassion, and we pray that Jonah did come to know it, they look back and are amazed. Oh my goodness. God turns people over and sets them so that they might worship and love him. So even in this, this message of destruction becomes a reminder to all of us that God is a compassionate God who turns people over and sets them to praise him. And it's exactly this that Jonah doesn't get. We got to know about this. It's exactly this that Jonah is, does not get and he's ticked off about it. Turn there in chapter 4 verse 1. <clears throat> Everybody's getting saved but Jonah is grumpy. What is his response? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was getting my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew you would forgive these people. And he's grumpy about it. Why is this a complaint about the steadfast love of God, His mercy, Him being patient. Why is this not a proclamation of great praise? Friends, God is a compassionate God. And those who say, oh, the Bible is all about, or the Old Testament is all about God's wrath. This here says that that notion of the Old Testament is absolutely false. And the book of Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah proves it, that God is a compassionate God. And he turns from judgment, from those who deserve judgment, being in sin, and he grants forgiveness, love and forgiveness. The question then is, if, you, if, you, if we are here and not a Christian, the question is, why are we not going to this God who promises compassion, who promises steadfast love and mercy and patience? Why are we not turning to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins? And that's where God's compassion sort of reaches its climax for us to see at least. Jesus' death on the cross for sinners who don't deserve anything but his judgment. That's what the book of Jonah tells us. That we ought to repent and believe. That we ought to trust in Christ and turn to this great compassionate Father. Jonah fortunately points us to this Christ, our Savior. But unfortunately, through his terrible example. This is what one pastor preacher wrote. Where Jonah was reluctant, Jesus was willing. Where Jonah complained... Jesus went meekly. Where Jonah was merely uncomfortable, Je Jesus was scourged. Where Jonah merely preached, Jesus died. All of us ought to listen to the words of this great hymn that echoes biblical truths. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. The response, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's the confidence that we can have because God is a compassionate God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, help us know your character more. 
We pray, Lord, that where our knowledge of you is faulty, that we would run to the Bible and that you would speak to us through your spirit. And that you would help us see who you are and behold who you are and love you more. Lord, you know what kind of families we come from and how often we ourselves even portray a poor understanding of fatherhood. Perhaps by the way that we speak to our children, by the way we discipline them, by the way we don't do these things for them. But Lord, we pray that we would know more and more and that we would convey to our own children that you are a gracious, compassionate, merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Father, we pray that we would run to you day after day after day, that we would in fact arise and go to you, Lord Jesus, who is ready and willing to forgive us when we call out to you, confessing our sins and repenting of them and trusting that you can in fact forgive and trusting that you can and in fact will satisfy. In your name we pray, amen.